Huh? You're an Indian. You're not even Mexican. Exactly. I'm an indigenous person. You're Indian. Exactly. We kick your guys' asses exactly. out of here. And that's what we're here. We that's what you're mad. We kick your ass out you're of here. You're mad. I'm about to deploy. I'm about to deploy. A state of emergency is declared in North Carolina amid another night of unrest in Charlotte. What started out as a peaceful march in the city's uptown area quickly turned violent. Uh, what started Throwing out again... Throwing punches like to punch him in the face. Oh, what is wrong with you? If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of him, would you? Seriously. I will pay for the legal fees, I promise. Trump's people are the most incredible. 68% would not leave under any circumstances. I think that means murder. I think it means anything. And this guy started screaming by himself. And they did, I don't know, rough up. He should have been, maybe he should have been roughed up. I would bomb the shit out of him. I'd blow up every single inch. There would be nothing left. Come on, let's go. Come on. They say, I have the most loyal people. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Every once in a while we talk about nonviolence, right? You're surprised to hear that from Trump, aren't you? Trump's a racist! Trump's a racist! I'm Ross, thank you. I'm so sorry. you. If I had a gun, I would shoot you dead! Give me your clean phone. Give me your phone. Ma'am, ma'am. Give me your phone. Give me your gun. I'm going to clean phone. Kill your kids and your mother. I've got people that'll do it. You watch. Ma'am, ma'am, calm down. I'm no. Thank you. The people have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then, in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world. In a world where the people have no voice, fake news runs wild. And social, social, social media dictates our lives. And we're here to keep it real at Media Lab. Just a group of students looking for the truth. Hashtag what story are you telling? Hashtag go tell it. NPR Media Today, we're going to meet a New England Public Radio Media Lab student who graduated from Springfield's High School of Commerce in 2016 and enrolled in Holyoke Community College. His senior year, he first worked with Media Lab staff through our partnership with UMass professor Nick McBride's Community Journalism Project. There, he first discussed politics and how the election affected him. In this podcast, he shares how U.S. immigration laws have made life difficult for him and his family. Seven years ago, I saw my father for the last time. I wonder what would have happened if he was never deported. Would I be different? Would my family be together, stress-free and financially stable? There's 11 other family members in our three-room apartment right now. Not three bedrooms, but three rooms. We're struggling to get by between rent and old debt, and now some of the people in my house are afraid to go outside because now they fear deportation even more than before. When my dad immigrated from Guatemala, he wanted the American dream for all of us. 
We all ate Spanish food, but whenever my dad had a chance, he'd order milkshakes and American steaks. He wanted to fit into a society we didn't seem to belong to. Life was tough for my parents when they grew up in Guatemala. It was common to see innocent people murdered where they lived. When my mom got pregnant with me, they knew they wanted to work hard so I could have a better life than they did. So they left my older siblings and grandparents and paid a gang to create fake documents and move them north. It was very dangerous, but my mom made it across and I was born a U.S. citizen. My dad crossed after, and they both started working and sending money back to Guatemala so the rest of our family could live somewhere else. So we moved to Springfield because we had no other option. We originally moved to Delaware, but we fell on hard times. My dad was deported the first time. I was in the back seat when he got pulled over somewhere in Delaware. After he was deported, we lost all our possessions in a fire. After that, my dad got himself back into the country. Our godparents got a hold of us and said we could live with them in a small house next to a liquor store. I remember waking up on the air mattress we shared and seeing my parents were gone because they had to work. I got ready in the morning and waited for the bus by myself. I saw my parents with their kids ready to hand them over to the bus lady to get picked up, and they would be there to pick them back up at 3.40. When I was eight, we moved to Guatemala for a year. My parents were well known there because after church, they would sell food all over town in their truck. It was nice to have the family together. But when I started to forget my English, my parents sent my younger sister and I on a flight back to our godparents and back to our tiny apartment. I hated it. My parents had to cross the border again. My mom was caught. But because I was already here, they let her go. When I was 12, a commercial of the Big E came on. It looked like a lot of fun, and lots of people talked about it. So we asked our dad to take us. Being the person he was, of course he said yes. We had fun, but on the way back, he got pulled over. He had no idea on him, so the police took him. My sisters were crying, and I thought if I remained calm and responsive, they would calm down and the police wouldn't make a big deal of it. One of the officers told me it was okay and he would be released in the morning, but I never saw him again. I would have cried too if I had known one night would turn into years. Since he was deported, my family dreamed of reconnecting with my dad. People say I look like my dad, same eyes, same hairline. One thing we didn't share was the drinking habit. When my parents would talk about their plans on the phone, my dad said he was drinking heavy because he was lonely and he missed us. My mom thought he would stop once we moved to Guatemala back with him. Once then on April 9th, we got a call that my dad died after a night of drinking. Trump says we are a danger to Americans. He says we take jobs away from Americans and that we are here to sell drugs and take welfare. But my mom works long days like everyone else and prays on Sundays that we'll be all right. I knew people who literally died trying to make it to America. Why do we try to come to a country that despises us? Because we have no other choice. Things were going better for my family, but my dad was stripped away from the family because we get no second chances. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor four, and the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. 
Check, 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 one, 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 two, two, two. Welcome to New England Public Radio. Media Lab Pod- Podcast. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Commentary is a personal story told within the time frame of two to five minutes. Typically, commentaries are about personal subjects. Now, back to our show. I was born in Congo in a place called Lubudi. Me and my mom got sick when I was three months old. My dad ran away to a different place. He said he didn't want to see me and my mom's death. By the grace of God, we both got better. As time passed on, war came to Congo. We were asleep one night when someone knocked on the door. He was a soldier my auntie opened the door. Immediately, he shot my auntie and she passed away. Among those soldiers, one knew our family. After they left, he came back to tell my family to move to a safe place. All my family left Congo to Zambia. When I was one year, starting a new life was difficult because all of our positions were still in Congo. When we got in Zambia, all our money was stolen. Zambians called us foreigners. The UNHCR came to look for us, and they took us in camp where other refugees lived. Sixteen years ago, I was in Zambia. It's when I began my first day of school. When the teachers saw me, they rejected me because I was too young. I was four years old. Mom pleaded with them because my sister started going to school and she was the only person I used to play with. I was too bored without her. I wanted to go to school. It was rain season and being in school felt good. The bright light came from the window side where the sun raised. I like school because there is something that I can gain at the end or in future. School is the key to success. I heard pets singing and chicken. My name is Lukiki Akola. I'm from Care Center. Thank you. Bye-bye. The first day I came to NEPR, I was so scared because I knew nothing about it. It was hard for me. I had no idea. I was so scared the first day to record and to put on headphones. I like this program and I like to continue because I never liked to write, but now I'm able. I like working with Carlos and Brian. They are good people and funny to work with. They encourage everyone to work the best that you can. And I really thank for Care Center for selecting me to be a part of the 108 program. Thank you.
my son okay. away from me. You know how hard it was for me to get him to stay in school and graduate. You know how many black men graduate? Not many, because you bring them down to this type of level where they feel like I don't got nothing to live for anyway. They're going to try to take me out anyway. One, two, three, four. with regret that I report the fatal shooting of yet another unarmed black male in America by police. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. At around 2.15 p.m. on Saturday, August 9th, Michael Brown, an 18-year-old African-American male, was shot and killed in the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, as he traveled to his grandmother's house. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. Me and my uh, friend, we was walking down the street, in the middle of the street, and we wasn't causing any harm to nobody. Uh, we had no weapons on us at all. We just walking, having a uh, conversation. No cars were blowing at us or hunking at us like we was uh, holding up traffic or anything like that. Uh, now, a police officer squad car pulled up, and when he pulled up, these was his exact words. He said, get the F on the sidewalk. And we told the officer we was not but a minute away from our destination, and we would shortly be out the street. You know we got to find a way to bring some love in New York Times reported that, according to local police who are still investigating the matter, an officer on patrol drove towards Michael Brown and another individual in his police vehicle. The officer stopped his car and attempted to exit and approach the two individuals. Upon his attempt, one of the men pushed the cop back into his vehicle and began physically assaulting him. And then he reversed his uh, truck, his car, and in a manner to where it almost hit us. And it blocked both lanes off the way he uh, turned his car. So he pulled up on the side of us. He tried to thrust his door open, but we were so close to it that it ricocheted off us and it bounced back to him. And I guess that, you know, uh, got him a little upset. Following the scuffle and initial shot, both the cop and the alleged assaulting individual left the car. Michael Brown was shot approximately 35 feet from the vehicle. Punish me with brutality. And he said, I'll shoot you, or I'm going to shoot. And in the same moment, the first shot went off. And we looked at him, he, he was shot, and it was blood coming from him. And we took off running. And as we took off running, I ducked and hid for my life because I was feared for my life. Talk to me, honey, so you can see oh, what's going on. What's going on? Hey, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. As he was running, the officer uh, was trying to get out of the car, and once he got out the car, he, uh, he pursued my friend, but his, his weapon was drawn. Now, he didn't see any weapon drawn at him or anything like that, us going for no weapon. His weapon was already drawn when he got out the car. He shot again. And once my friend felt that shot, he turned around and he put his hands in the earth and he started to get down. 
but the officer still approached with his weapon, with his weapon, with his weapon, with his weapon drawn, and he fired several more shots. And my friend died. The officer involved in the shooting is reportedly a six-year veteran of the force. Michael Brown's body was reportedly left in the street for hours as both police and local residents gathered around. Since the initial reports of the shooting have been published, mainstream media coverage has largely switched over to news of the protests, riots, and looting that have occurred in the hours and days after the incident. Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden, and father, Lewis Head, were on site during the protests. Head held up a sign that read, Ferguson police just executed my unarmed son. This is bigger than one just incident. This is bigger than what just happened here in Ferguson. This is a real problem when it comes to police brutality and how young black men are being dealt with on the street. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed. The bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural.
I believe that we are at the point now in the United States where a movement is beginning to emerge. I think that the calamity, the quagmire of the Iraq war, the outsourcing of jobs, the dropout of young people from the educational system, the monstrous growth of the prison industrial complex, the planetary emergency in which we are engulfed at the present moment, is we demanding that instead of just complaining about these things, instead of just protesting about these things, we begin to look for and hope for another way of living. And I think that that's when the movement, I, I see a movement beginning to emerge because I see hope beginning to trump despair. I see the signs in the various small groups that are emerging all over the place to try and regain our humanity in very practical ways. New England Public Radio's Media Lab is made possible through the generous contributions from the Berkshire Bank Foundation, Incorporated, the Community Foundation of Western Massachusetts, the Irene E. and George A. Davis Foundation, Tom and Kit Dennis, Thomas and Marilyn Ewig, the Kitteridge Foundation, Mass Humanities, TD Bank and TD Charitable Foundation, the United Bank Foundation, the Rotary Club, and two anonymous donors. To find more of our work, please visit us at nepr.net. Check us out on nepr.net, or you can hit us up on Facebook at nepr underscore media lab. And don't forget to hashtag what story are you telling as you tell your own. Peace.